I'm Jonathan Platt, and you're listening to Direct Line Conversations, the podcast. Nobody makes it to the top alone. Now, you don't even have to try. Your journey to a life filled with purpose and leadership fueled by confidence begins right now. This week is a special one. My guest is 2021 Hall of Fame Distinguished Alumna Honoree, Ella Wall Pritchard. Ella earned a BA from Baylor in 1963 with a major in history and a minor in journalism. She served as editor of the Lariat her senior year, where she penned the first editorial calling for desegregation of the Baylor campus. Ella and her husband Lev, who passed away in 2009, lived in Corpus Christi, where she reared her family and served Baylor, her church, and her community in a myriad of volunteer roles. She has served as a Baylor regent, a member of the Baylor Alumni Association Board, and in many other leadership roles. Her spiritual memoir of grief, Reclaiming Joy, a Primer for Widows, was published in 2018. Thanks so much for joining me to hear Ella's story and celebrate her together as the Baylor family. Here's my interview with my friend and personal hero, distinguished alumna Ella Wall Pritchard. I'm so excited to be talking to you uh, today. I know you know this, um, but you're just one of my favorite people to talk to. And actually, I was thinking about this earlier. Um, one of my most repeat interviewees. So it's fun to put another, you know, mark on the chalkboard with us talking. Yes, you're responsible for turning me into a myth or something. <laughs> I guess a rising sophomore. It was the summer after your freshman in year in college. Yes, that you, is correct. You were taking a journalism course and called me about Valeria. And yes. You I was taking... It was, it was an English course, um, but I but I convinced the professor to let me do it was it we we studied um, we took the um, oh I can't remember the singer's song but it's we didn't start the fire we took lines from that song and then had to write an entire essay about what that line inspired us about and I got the um, Ole Miss line and then of course you know the rest of the story about you know yeah. henry going to, to old miss and Kermit. and so that is that that was yes my first interview with you was probably sophomore sophomore year of of, of college it's so before your sophomore year i think i mean i think so sophomore but it was yeah it was, yeah you finished your freshman year as i recall but anyway <laughs> yeah you're your new role i'm not so new anymore but it's great that you're at the line thank you Thank you. Well, it is an honor um, and a privilege to get to speak with you and also uh, to congratulate you and celebrate you on being one of this year's uh, 2021 Distinguished Alumna for our Hall of Fame uh, Awards. And I'm, I'm just so excited to be a part of this organization in, and this family in celebrating uh, you. So Ella, as we've kind of both revealed, we already know each other and uh, we, know, we know each other pretty personally. Um, I've, I've, of course, gotten to collect over the years tons of stories um, about you and from you, and I've gotten to see your bio and, and what will be in the program for this year. But for those who may not know you or may not know the full story, um, could you share with us your, your life's story and tell us um, all, the, all the highlights and the interesting parts that you would want people to know? I just don't know how interesting my life is, John. I mean, you know, I feel like I 
I, when you look at the list of recipients, it, you know, which one of these doesn't belong here. Uh, I've been coming to these since early after the crew, after they were inaugurated. I mean, I was there in probably 1976 or 77 when Ralph Storm was honored. And I've been to certainly more than half of them in the years since then. So um, yes, I'm, I'm sort of fascinated to know why I'm here, even though it's, I mean, it is the greatest honor of my life, needless to say, but um, I, I feel very unworthy. Um, I didn't, I started to say, you know, I'm just a housewife, but I never would let, let this is that for my occupation on tax forms and such, because I said, I really don't stay home and keep house. <laughs> you know, I, I haven't ever been self-supporting or had, you know, or had to hold a full-time job or anything like that. So it's, you know, it's not, um, I haven't followed the path that normally leads to these kinds of honors. And uh, I don't know where to start. I was born in New Orleans, right before the beginning of World War II. Uh, and I will just mention, because I think it will come up later in my remarks, uh, we lived in my great-grandmother's house and during the war. And she, was one of the founders of the Lost Cause. Her father was a, a Confederate officer who was imprisoned uh, by the Union soldiers. Um, her mother um, was chairman of the committee that raised the money to erect the Jefferson Davis Memorial in New Orleans, the first of the statues to come down in New Orleans. And so I come from a very, very old Southern family. That's my background. And my ancestors came to the Louisiana-Mississippi line about 1800, while Louisiana was still part of Spain, uh, to plant Baptist churches. They came from South Carolina. So that is the other thing about me. Um, I go back generations as a, as a Baptist. And um, I don't think you can really understand me very well if you don't understand that that is part of who I am. Um, my dad worked for the railroad. Uh, he had risen to management by the time I was born. We moved, to, we were transferred to, he was transferred to Texarkana when I was six. So I started first grade in Texarkana. I've, I've never clarified this, but it's always been a curiosity. Did you grow up on the Arkansas side of Texarkana or the Texas side of Texarkana? Oh, Arkansas. Okay. <laughs> you know, I count, I count New Orleans as my hometown, but if I'm going to claim a home state, it's Arkansas. <laughs> I've lived in Texas since 1959, but I, I'm not a Texan. <laughs> 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 That's probably another thing to know about me is I, I am not a Texan. But, um, you know, I grew up in Texarkana. It was a very quiet childhood. My brother was 10 years older than I, so he went away to college when I was only eight. Um, my parents, my 
that standard, they wouldn't be considered old now, but they were then because, of course, I was with the children of men who had fought in World War II, and my dad was uh, 37 when, when I was born, and so he missed the draft. Um, but so, you know, it was, it was a quiet childhood. I was religious. I was studious. Um, and um, I loved books. I started writing little stories and things when I was about in the third grade, I suppose. Um, and I don't know where my love for Baylor came in. I mean, I can't remember not wanting to go to Baylor. And yet there were no family connections. My mother thinks that in the small Baptist church that we attended the first couple of years we were in Texarkana, that the music minister was a Baylor graduate. And mother thinks that that's where I probably heard about Baylor first and it made an impression. Um, I was also very involved in scouting. We had a wonderful troop that we stayed together from the second through the 12th grade. And um, that gave me leadership opportunities uh, because um, I wasn't one of these cute little popular girls. You know? <laughs> I had this girl, curly hair that couldn't have gone up into a ponytail for love nor money. Nor, you know, I guess the two leading movie stars of that day, women, or the two epitomies would have been uh, Marilyn Monroe and Debbie Reynolds, and I was neither. <laughs> so, you know, I, 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 it was good for me to have opportunities. The church also provided those for me. Uh, where, oh, I hate to sound like say this, I mean, it sounds sort of conceited, but places where my intellect mattered, you know, that, that there were basic opportunities that were based on merit and character rather than popularity. Yeah. Um, so when I got to Baylor in 1959, I mean, I had always felt like a misfit in Texarkana. And when I got to Baylor, it was just, you know, I, to use my granddaughter's terms, I had found my people. <laughs> and that was, I mean, and so it was really love at first sight. I think the other thing that I should mention, uh, because again, it fits with what will come up later, is that. I was in high school during the beginnings of all of the civil rights movement. Uh, Orville Faubus was the governor of Arkansas. My junior year in high school is when Eisenhower sent in the troops to, to force the integration. And we were very directly affected by that because Little Rock people sent their children to live with relatives or friends to continue their education. And the 18-year-olds in our school who had joined the National Guard got called up. And so, you know, we, we, we saw all of that. So I come from that back, background. I mean, truly, John, I never had met 
um, a black person, except maybe in a servant or our worker, labor capacity. Uh, I mean, segregation was absolute. There wouldn't have been an opportunity if I had wanted one. And so from that, I went to Baylor. And in those days, instead of the current, uh, what do you call that orientation that takes place before? Welcome week. Welcome week. Well, the Baptist Student Union, Baptist Student Ministry now, uh, had a freshman retreat out at Latham Springs. And so you actually went to Latham Springs before classes started. And one of the primary speakers was a man named, oh, and I say this and I'm going, I'm going to forget his name. Um, oh, goodness. I'm having a senior moment. Anyway, Bill Lawson who had been the first black summer BSU summer missionary to the Philippines with a Baylor student. And Lawson went on to become one of the great civil ministers and civil rights leaders in Houston and is still alive. Uh, but to hear his story that you had to be a member of a Texas Baptist Church to be a VSU summer missionary. And Texas Baptist churches were all segregated. So there were no black missionaries. And I think it, this wouldn't be surprising. Um, I think it was First Baptist Church Austin who accepted his, he had already been appointed to be a VSU director, Prairie View or Texas Southern. And so I think it was First Baptist Church Austin, who accepted him so he could be a, an official Texas Baptist to get those appointments. But I mean, that was revolutionary to me. It really was. And so I would say that the person I am today, hopefully I'm wiser and, and, and smoother around the edges than I was at 18. And every experience you have fills on, you know, what came prior. But I would say that that was a transformational experience for me. Um, and that today I'm still the same person that I started becoming that really summer as I began my freshman year at Baylor. So um, yeah, I wouldn't be who I am if it wasn't for Baylor. So um, it's, it's, you know, it's all about giving back. Um, I was, I can remember, it had to have been followed my senior year when I was editor of the Lariat. Um, I started thinking about this after I was informed that I had been selected and what on earth could I say? Um, but I can remember walking catty corner across the mall, probably going from the Lariat office, which was in Harrington Hall then, toward Alexander, where I lived. And thinking about sort of making a mental list of all that I had accomplished at Baylor and asking myself, how in the world can I ever repay Baylor? So, I mean, I think that's my motivation. Um, I know the very next fall after I graduated, um, we had a meeting of the journalism alumni and 
it was all, we were all very young. And um, there was only one journalism scholarship and it was 10,000, it was a $10,000 endowment for freshmen. And uh, our faculty, it was Dave Chevins and David McCann said, uh, we really need to keep students in. We need another scholarship. And uh, Fred Hartman, who had donated that first scholarship, he was one of a great Baylor journalism graduate from previous generation, and his son graduated one year ahead of me, had been Larry an editor ahead of me. And so Mr. Hartman offered $5,000 if the young alumni would raise the other $5,000 to provide a scholarship. We were sitting on the, on the steps going up to the next floor in the, in the journalism area of Harrington. And um, so that's how I got started giving, was in that, you know, that invitation, that challenge that Mr. Hartman had, uh, extended back in fall 1963. So, uh, you know, uh, was planning to go uh, to Columbia Graduate School of Journalism and write for the New York Times. That was my ambition. And because David McCann, who I was one of his first students, but had gotten his master's at Columbia, we all wanted to go to Columbia. Um, and he was getting students in there. So it was not an the only thing that was unrealistic about it was how I would pay for it. Um, but instead, I, I came down to Corpus Christi, which I had never been to before, for summer internship at Color Times. Um, was introduced to Lev on one day in about a month after I got there. And um, so we spent the fall when I was Larry and editor. He'd get off work at five o'clock on Friday and would have to speed driving up Highway 77. Um, to get to wake up before the dorm doors closed. <laughs> I didn't know that. That's precious. Oh, yeah. And so um, it just became obvious that this was unsustainable. <laughs> you know, he comes up there, he stays in a motel, you know, he drives home after dark on Sunday night. So, which is why we got married December of my senior year. And then I came back and finished it in those days, the semester went till January, came back, finished my editorship took my final exams, and then Baylor was nice enough to let me do my last 15 hours back home. Well, they made me do two correspondence courses that allowed me, that were required and allowed me to take other three courses. And, and when, you, when you came back for those finals uh, in January, they wouldn't let you back in the dorm, would they? Well, they wouldn't let me go back and stay with my old roommate <laughs> because I was married and I might contaminate everybody. <laughs> in those days, the, door, the women's dorms, I guess they all did. Certainly Alexander had, had one or two guest suites that, so that when mothers came to visit, they had a nice safe room to stay in. So they allowed me to spend those three weeks. <laughs> you knew that story already. Uh, you know, yes, uh, that, that was funny. But, uh, you know, graduated, and uh, I could have had a job at the College Times, but, you know, in those days when my, when my new husband said, no wife of mine is ever going to work, um, 
I sort of saluted him and said, yes, sir. <laughs> and, um, and life in Corpus Christi has been incredibly good. To use lots of one good is hardly the accurate description. But this is what I tell, I've told my own grandchildren this, particularly the granddaughters and other young women that don't be so focused on career goals that you're not willing, let's say a geographically undesirable place. So the Corpus Christi is not geographically undesirable undesirable, but it was not a place to pursue my career. I wish I had known how this was. Uh, I mean, I look at Bob Darden's career and the years that he worked full-time as a freelancer and, you know, supported the family as a freelancer. And I really didn't, I have one of the few not, um, freelance articles that were published, but I really didn't know how one did that. I really didn't I just didn't have a clue how to do that. So yeah. I found opportunities as a volunteer. Um, in every nonprofit, there are needs for public relations and publicity and fundraising and all of the things that communications skills are good for. There was an opportunity for that at the church. I ended up, uh, this sounds horrible now, but this was years ago uh, when church politics were different. Um, for a decade or so, I wrote uh, Sunday School Curriculum for the Southern Baptist Convention Sunday School Board, uh, right up to 1986, I think. And so there have always been opportunities for fulfillment. You know, had two wonderful children, got them educated. Uh, when the second one went off to Baylor, I two friends who were also new empty nesters and also had journalism backgrounds or writing backgrounds. And I went out and bought Apple, the first little Apple 2E and uh, started and uh, taught ourselves the, the layout programs and such and did a little desktop publishing business, producing uh, things for nonprofits and such. Did that for about 10 years. Uh, and then I guess got involved um, in Texans War on Drugs um, in, through a volunteer appointment to be in, in the ground floor of that, which meant that, you know, I went to Dallas and met Nancy Reagan and Bill Clinton, Governor Clements and Ross Perot and all of that. And that led to an appointment to uh, serve um, the national board that Nancy Reagan was honorary chair of. So that meant going to Washington. Um, it, you know, um, I had to give a speech in Washington. I followed Nancy Reagan on the platform before an audience around 700 people. And uh, so anytime I have cold feet about having to speak, I tell myself, if you could do that, you can, <laughs> you know. Um, but again, I would, I, would, I would credit the church because in the old days, maybe some churches still do this, there was always youth 
week and youth Sunday. And, and sure. I, I couldn't be the minister or the education minister or any of those things because I was female. So I was up, I seemed to be the WMU chair person every time when these things came around. But, you know, on those occasions, we were in the pulpit. We spoke from the pulpit. And so I think about those kinds of experiences of, of you know, standing in the pulpit of a fair sized Baptist church as a kid. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm a writer, not a speaker. Uh, And I write write what I have to say, and then I more or less read it. But but it did give me that, uh, the the church and scouting, as I mentioned before, really gave me confidence to do these things. I guess one of the things I should mention about scouting, I knew, of course, I ended up doing exactly what my mother did, but what I knew was I wanted to get out of Texarkana and I didn't want to be like my mother because she and all her friends seemed to be, the, I called it the three C's. I didn't know the Germans had already had beaten me to it with the K words, but cooking children in church. And that's all they talked about. And I thought that was really, really, really boring. And um, you, there just weren't many role models. But my scout leader, um, who was the mother of one of my best friends, uh, was a Baylor graduate, and the, the executive director you know, uh, of scouting in Texarkana was a Baylor graduate. And so the two women that I could identify as being more than the traditional roles that I saw everywhere else. Sure. Uh, so, so you have, so you have the, um, you have the what who who may have your your mother may have recalled the music minister was uh, potentially a Baylor influence, and then you have these two scout uh, leaders who are Baylor influences, and then at at some point you've either told me or someone else has told me that you told them that the Sugar Bowl um, oh, yes. victory really kind of like changed your mind about it, oh, and you've, you've served on the it confirmed. Um, yes. And, and, you know, and this, again, this is, this is sort of an awkward thing to say, but it sort of put, it puts it in perspective. Um, I was Texarkana's first National Merit Scholar, which, you know, gave me the ability to, since those are need-based scholarships, I could afford to go somewhere that my, that my parents might not be able to send me because sure. The scholarship was going to be as big as or as small as I needed, uh, and and so so Ella, so you 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 know you you came to Baylor and you after all this leadership experience as a child, um, you you led as a as a lead, a leader um, in the the journalism department at the Lariat, and then as a as a young organizer as a, a leader in your family, and ultimately you know serving on I guess I shouldn't even say ultimately because you've done so much even since then serving on the Baylor Board of Regents, serving um, on the uh, Baylor Alumni Association Board, on boards for the um, uh, Journalism, Public Relations, and New Media Department, the College of Arts and Science, and I could just keep going with all that. And as someone who 
you know, as you said, from your earliest of days, kind of knew that Baylor was a place you wanted to go. And someone who has served for and with the Baylor family so long, what does this award mean to you? The Distinguished Alumna Award, one of the highest awards that a Baylor uh, uh, alumna or alumni can receive. What does this award mean to you? It it is, and that's what I said. I mean, it's the highest. You can't love your alma mater the way I love Baylor and not consider this the greatest honor of your life. I mean, there's no other way to interpret it. But as I said also, um, I mean, even within the journalism department, I look at the previous recipients of Hal Winga, who was at Time Life, who covered Vietnam, who created People magazine, Jack Loftus, the longtime executive editor of the Houston, or editor of the Houston Chronicle, Tony Peterson, who followed him, was his executive editor or whatever Tony's position was at the Chronicle. Maybe Mr. Hartman, uh, I'm not sure if he was awarded or not, but certainly a, a very, very successful small town newspaper chain owner, um, Bob, um, last, just last year. Um, and it's, it's like, what have I done? I mean, I have, you know, I, I look at the achievements. I mean, I've, I've nominated several people and uh, I know, and I've served on the selection committee twice when I was on the one association board. And so it's, um, I, I don't quite understand. No. Why? Ella, Ella, let's let's talk about some of those people that that got you here. If you're if you're like me, you'd much rather talk about other people um, than yourself when it comes to an award like this. So maybe we could talk about some of the the mentors, the inspirations, the the friends you've made uh, in this Baylor family. I know we've we've mentioned Bob and we've mentioned David McCam, and I mentioned by first name um, Henry Holcomb who I know has been a lifelong friend, but who are, who are some of those people that have caused you to not only be a better leader and, and a better journalist, but also just a better person? Well, certainly the... That was a golden time at Baylor in terms of teaching. And I was fortunate enough, I'm, I'm a proud graduate of college, but I hit my major in history. And um, I started out as an English major. It lasted six weeks because <laughs> they didn't like the way I wrote. I can still tell you that the two things that were wrong with my essay, I had never seen a C on it. I probably had never seen a B on an English paper in my life, but I had a C. I remember calling my high school English teacher. It's like, I had a C. Um, but obviously my, my vision of of how you write and the English department's vision of how one writes um, were not the same thing. And I mean, I was taking American history under Rufus Spain, who was very young, then didn't have his doctorate, had his book, you know, hadn't been published. But uh, history came to life in a way it never did in a way history is taught in the public, was taught then in the public schools and probably is no better now. Um, 
And so yeah, I changed my major. You know, the journalism department was tiny then, and there were just a couple of faculty. My sophomore year, I don't think there was any faculty, maybe just one. So I mean, I, uh, it was hardly worth majoring in. I mean, I always knew I wanted to go into journalism, but uh, there wasn't a lot of intellectual heft in the kind of courses that were taught. And so history was just, so then from, from with a Spain, I went to, you know, the famed Leonard Reed for European history. And not many people mentioned Bruce Thompson, but I took Renaissance and Reformation and uh, Civil War and Reconstruction under Bruce Thompson. He was an amazing teacher of cultural history, which was also a new experience to me. Um, where, just out of curiosity, where were your history classes? Were they in Old Main or were they in Tidwell? They were in Tidwell. That's so interesting because I took my history classes. I was the opposite of you. I was a journalism major and a history minor. And I took my history classes in Tidwell. So that was just mm-hmm. my own curiosity. Yeah. And so, you know, all of that was grand. I was in the honors program my junior year, which was a thrilling experience because I was forced to read so many books and so many disciplines that, <laughs> that I would have never read before that just uh, really made me a broad and more educated person. Uh, philosophy. 151 under Bob Reed when he was a young graduate assistant before he had his PhD, got his PhD. Uh, when I look back on it, it's probably one of the most influential courses that I ever taught because he taught me how to think logically and ethically. <laughs> and that's that's a big help in life. Is to, in fact, that was the one thing I told my daughter when she went to Baylor. She didn't manage to get Bob, but take take a take a philosophy course is one of your electives because it will serve you well in life. And um, how wonderful that Baylor still has some core curriculum courses. Yes, and, and so educate, so, not just train people for jobs. Yes. So after after your time as a student, uh, you still remained um, in the Baylor, you know, family actively. And uh, who are some of those people that have remained with you? You know, either uh, colleagues or, or people that inspired you from outside of your student career, and as you were a volunteer and a leader uh, in in on campus and uh, in the Baylor family. So who have I kept up with over the years? Or something? Sure, yeah. Who, who has, who has um, helped make you uh, the person you are today since your Baylor career? Um, well, um, I don't know that I could name a person. Um, I did discover that though I wanted very much to be like my dad and not my mother when I was growing up, I think it's not unusual when you're grown, especially for, for a girl, when, when you become a mother, um, to realize how much like your, your mother you are. My mother was a probably the most genuine Christian person I have ever known. I mean, she absolutely taught, walked the walk, and a fabulous teacher knew the Bible 
uh, backwards and forwards. Um, and so I would say this day, she's still, still the primary theological influence on my life. I realized that the way I was raised was not typical. I didn't know that then, but it definitely was not typical. Um, she really didn't want me to be popular, so I was never encouraged to uh, be, uh, um, you know, girly, and because she thought that could lead to moral compromises if you sought popularity. Um, and then my father was just always saying, you know, so that, um, and played devil's advocate to me. Um, but um, this is going to sound very old fashioned and very privileged, I suppose. But I was a young woman in the heyday, maybe, of, of the Junior League. And they really were committed to training young women to equip you to be, by the time you were 40 and so sort of graduated from active status, um, for you to be able to go out self-motivated to serve the community. So you had strict requirements for attendance and volunteer work and committee assignments. And uh, oh, that gave me unbelievable opportunities. I mean, I, I chaired 16 different committees in in the 17 years I was a member, it was through the Junior League that I was uh, put in the war on drugs thing, uh, which is how I got on the board, by the way, because uh, I had set up a local organization, nonprofit for that. I you know, served on a national board. And so Herb Reynolds asked me, and I didn't realize at the time, but obviously um, we had started out on a adversarial relationship over labor journalism in the 1970s. And so, but um, we had come to know each other better personally. That's really due to Ralph Storm. Well, I'd have to say, you know, Ralph Storm had left. Well, Ralph, I got to know Ralph first. I was head of the high school Sunday school department. I recruited Ralph to be a Sunday school teacher. So from that, he and Lamb ended up as business partners. And I mean, so, I mean, Ralph Storm's influence on my whole family, I mean, my son fell in love with airplanes uh, as a little boy sat, who was seated and got in Ralph's lap when he flew his own plane. And uh, so, I mean, I just can't describe the influence that Ralph had on all of our lives. Uh, he was the one who taught Webb, how to be a giver, and got Webb so involved in Baylor football and all of that, that that opened doors. I mean, those were the old days of boosters. We got to fly on Braddock on charter planes with the team, you know, hang out. And, and, and they were, Grant Tap was so nice, he would include us um, for the Arkansas games. Knowing I was from Arkansas, I couldn't be recorded at being commanded to, to see pigs in the aisle of a flight for Baylor football players. <laughs> you know, it was a crazy time, but it was wonderfully fun. And so, I mean, of course, Ralph was my mentor on the board, and it was through Ralph that I got to 
that Herb got to know me in a better light, I suppose would be the best way to say it. Uh, so really, I realized that I was wanted to be chairman of a committee to study better drug and alcohol policies and to uh, lead this, this committee um, to rewrite all the better rules. It was about a two-year assignment, but um, and that's what led to one of the, maybe the W.R. White Award. Uh, but it was after I did that that I was asked to be on the board. So I, I think Herb was probably checking me out to make sure I wasn't going to be too contentious or, <laughs> or such, you know. <laughs> um, and, but I mean, Ralph's also the person who, I guess, did a better job of smoothing out my rough edges than anyone else. Uh, the idea of sandwiching criticism. Yes, the 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 give the give the positive, give the the negative or the fix, and then give the positive again. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was it was those sorts of things I learned from Ralph. Um, yeah. My, you know, well, um, mm. was. I mean, I could not have done any of it without him because um, this is, again, this is just so, so outdated. But what I had discovered in high school and in college too um, was that boys didn't really like compete with girls. And I was never timid about raising my hand, you know, or challenging someone I disagreed with. And that was four years older than I. I was 21, he was 25, we met. And um, he was fascinated with my occupation, with what I was doing. And he didn't care what I did from 8.30 when he left for the office at 5.30 when he came home. And so when I got really overloaded, he might start complaining when he saw me getting really stressed out. But uh, he really was very proud of me and he was very supportive of me and he was supportive financially as well as giving me that freedom with my time. And uh, so I have to, you know, uh, I have to give him a huge amount of credit. He never wanted to be the spouse. When I went on the board, there were 48 of us and I was the fourth woman to join the board. And I, I got the little the, the letter of my board meeting and it was, you know, you order your meal and you do these things. And then it wanted to know if your wife wanted to be, uh, to go with the other wives for, for their daily outing with the joint pills. <laughs> I can remember writing on the bottom, I'm sorry, but I don't have a wife. <laughs> <laughs> and there was no way Lev was going to be the spouse and go to those meetings. I would have to persuade him to come to Waco once a year with me, one more meeting a year, because he gave me the freedom to do what I wanted to do. But he he was not interested in being the supportive spouse either. So we had a lot of 
It's another thing that apparently was unusual for us. I mean, you know, I travel independently. I eat out alone. I, I don't. I've been around the world by myself. Uh, don't think anything of it. Uh, but for very different reasons, um, or in different circumstances, and maybe World War II played a part in it. Lev's dad was in the military. Um, so his mother, his mother always traveled independently and was a very strong woman. And uh, my mother had a railroad pass and my dad may have worked long hours, but it didn't stop my mother from getting on the train and going to visit uh, sisters-in-law in the Valley from New Orleans or a sister in New York or a sister in Spokane, Washington. So we both were had independent mothers. And it neither, so it never occurred to either of us that we couldn't yeah. have. That you couldn't have your, your own independency. Yeah. yeah. And so. That's so uh, interesting. You know, and, I mean, of course, we didn't even think anything about it. There was never a conversation about it. Sure. Uh, you know, I mean, three weeks after, well, it was two weeks after we married. I got in the car and drove the bagel for three weeks and you know, took my bottles and did all that stuff and drove back to work. So that was just, I mean, that was, but obviously if I'd had a different kind of husband, I couldn't have had all the experiences yeah. that I had. So I have, I have to say that was just huge. But, you know, well, even today, go ahead. Ella, I, I just... I never got to meet Lev, but every story that I hear about him, it's just more interesting than the last. And I, I just find it such a privilege to, to be adopted um, into your fan club. And, and it's just, it's just so, if we're not careful, we're going to go all afternoon because I seriously could uh, listen to this over and over and over. I've told you this once and, and I, I'll tell you this a thousand times more. You are a personal hero to me. And it's just so, it's so meaningful to get to play a small role in celebrating you for this award. So to keep us moving on, um, I wonder if it would be okay if we did just a few rapid fire questions. These are, these are just, you don't think before you answer, you know, these are just what's on the top of your head, real easy questions, just to kind of round out our time together and give us, you know, just a, a little few glimpses into, um, just the, the other sides of, of Ella. So um, if you're okay with that, I'll okay. go ahead and, and get started. Okay. So my, my, my first question um, is, are you into any like TV shows right now? Are you binging anything on Netflix or watching anything regularly? The only thing I am binging on is news these days. Oh gosh, bless you. <laughs> I've never, well, I'm really not TV news, the written news. I'm not a big TV watcher. I'm, mm. I'm a reader. My, my family started teasing me the other day because I was mispronouncing several names. And my daughter finally said to the granddaughter, sort of laughing behind my back. But you had never heard them out loud. You'd only ever read them. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm saying them phonetically correctly. You know, it's just, how am I supposed to know that Jesus is basis? And so, okay, so Ella, that's actually, it's actually a great segue. My second question was, when you go to bed tonight, what's on your nightstand? What are you, what are you reading? Or maybe on your end tables around your house, wherever you read. Oh, you read on your iPad. Okay. 
What's what have you got open on your iPad right now? And these days, what I am reading is news, 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 news. Yeah, you don't have any books open right now. I think they're open, but forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> I'm there. I've got a few like that. <laughs> so, yeah, there's there's several half finished ones. So yeah. Um, so. You, you mentioned you mentioned earlier, um, and and we've seen pictures of them, and, and I've heard stories of them. But you mentioned traveling all over the world, and if coronavirus wasn't a thing, if we didn't have to be, you know, real safe in the places that we are, um, and you know, time, money, energy, uh, resources were not a constraint, where in all the places that you've been, and all the places you could be, where would you be right now? Well, that's. Let's I know. I know it's kind of a harder question. Rather, let's you know. Let's not factor in that it's February because that there are places that you does know, change it. That that changes. Yes, I don't want to be in Nantucket in February. <laughs> uh, but um, but you know that is a discovery I've made since, as a well. This this place where I can go so safely be surrounded by everything that I love. Uh, and so that, it, you know, I mean, it's trite to say it, but that is my happy place. And uh, I did get there in September. I was determined not to have a summer go by or a year go by without getting there. And so I took that risk and I did have my reservations for next summer. Um, most beautiful place in the world is the Amalfi Coast. That's just that it is because I guess I like scenery where you also see the human footprint and the layers of civilization are very deep. And in that part of Italy, um, the most transformational place I have ever been, unfortunately, on that time I circumvented the globe, I went back to, as you know, I led a construct a mission construction team to Sri Lanka one year, almost to, uh, to the day, um, after the tsunami, and we helped build a Baptist village, and to live among the people, I was the well, I was the only one of the team who had passport, which is why I had to go because they weren't worried about going and building and all of those things. They were worried about getting there. And so I was had to be the travel agent uh, or the, the tour guide. But I also, the one thing I could do was cook. And so I, I went to the markets every day. And what was, what was your favorite meal that you cooked there? Can you remember? Oh, goodness. Uh, you know, I had... There was a little two-burner propane stove that was set up outside on the porch uh, that I had to cook the meals for us on. And I had to practice the, the, the typical rules of tropical cooking, um, which was boil everything, you know, uh, in case there's, you know, I, I was shopping at open-air markets and meat markets where the meat was hanging on the hooks. Uh, so it was, you know, spaghetti, things like that. I, I ate the, the Sri Lankan food, but oh my, 
my team wanted American food. So it, it was, you know, it was the, the chicken and the meat cooking sauces and such. And, um, but it was, uh, it was important that I went back there and saw the people living in that village. And so that was a, that was a transformational experience for me as well. So. And Ella, my, my last question is, um, of all the things to be grateful for right now in this world, what are you most grateful for right now? Two part answer. Um, family, of course. Um, and especially, I'm so thankful to have lived long enough. And of course, I had my family young enough and the children had their families young enough. Then I'm seeing my, all of my grandchildren as working adults. And I adore them. They adore me. They know I adore them. And, um, you know, they give me just um, constant joy. Um, it's good to see that they turned out well. And, and I have my first great-grandchild, who is, you know, is Ellie. And that's a huge, huge joy. But the other thing, and this is when I talk to other widows, and you know, that's been part of my life for um, 12 years now, I guess, uh, and the book and all. But I remind my friends, with, uh, if we, we're so fortunate. If, I mean, I think there are three essentials, not essentials because everybody doesn't have them, but things to be very grateful for if you reach this place in life and have them that make life make life good. Um, if you're a reasonable sound mind and body, if you are financially secure, it doesn't mean you have to be rich, but you, you're not having to worry about putting food on your table or paying bills or, or if the car has a, a major expense, unexpected expense. Um, and then if you have a support system, if you have, I mean, I have, my friends are the friends I made in the early 1960s. And so, you know, and I have a supportive family and not everybody has a support system. So if you have all of those things and then you have faith with it, then life is very good. And I think, um, I lost count, but the last time I counted, I raised 13 or struck 13 names for my Christmas card list this year of people who had died in the last 12 months. And so just to be thankful for life itself. Well, Ella, I'm yet again just so grateful and thankful to get to spend time with you and uh, to just hear you tell your story, honestly, in, in ways that I've never heard it uh, told before. I, I cannot wait to uh, celebrate you this year at Hall of Fame and um, then hopefully someday soon, but in the future, get to celebrate uh, with all of those friends and you in person, this just phenomenal and very deserved award. So thank you so much for this time. Well, thanks, John, and thanks to the Federal Line Foundation. 
I'm Jonathan Platt, and you've been listening to Direct Line Conversations, the podcast, brought to you by Baylor Line Foundation. You can follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook. And if you haven't, hop on over to wherever you're listening to this and follow, leave a rating, and a review. It really does help. Join me next week for another Direct Line Conversation. Thanks for listening.